0: You're listening to The Voice of Insurance, I'm Mark Gagan. Today's guest is a bit of a coup for The Voice of Insurance. He's the CEO of a $13 billion top 10 reinsurance and specialty insurance group that spans the full length of the insurance value chain. Yet despite being a public company of great scale, until now it hasn't had much of a public profile. Its previous CEOs were notoriously publicity shy, but that's about to change. Juan Andrade has been in post since January and is starting to give Everest Re a public profile that befits its size and relevance in our market. Here we have a full discussion of the state of the industry, changes in investor appetite and how this is driving what Juan describes as an underwriter's market. We talk about the class of 2020 and its prospects and of course the immediate and potential effects of COVID-19 and how Everest is positioning itself within all of this to take full advantage of market conditions. Juan is a concise and precise communicator, and the next 20 or so minutes are packed with valuable information and insight. I highly recommend a listen. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, Chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access, CDA, who've kindly supported this podcast. Rick, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners?
1: Sure. We're excited to announce that CDA is going to be marketing its claim service over in London. Prime Insurance Company has done business with Lloyd Syndicate since 1995 as a cover holder and as the TPA. So we're looking to grow the TPA business. CDA has a proven track record in all 50 states as evidenced by Prime Insurance Company's own uh, loss ratio and success in underwriting and managing claims nationwide. So we're excited to bring that to our Lloyds partners and offer them more flexibility by issuing prime paper when necessary and letting Lloyds fall in behind us or sharing risk and managing claims, although we'll do it a la carte, and the claims service is certainly something that I think is valuable. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value. Obviously, you can be a good underwriter, and if the claims falls apart, the underwriting is a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims.
0: Well, that's great, Rick. And just to be clear, CDA handles all of Prime's claims. Correct. Well, thank you so much for that. Thanks for your support. And we'll get on with the podcast. So, Juan, what's your long-term vision for Everest, 3
2: Great, Mark. And number one, thank
0: you for having me here today, by the way. Oh, thanks for coming.
2: Uh, sure. Look, as I, as I look at the company, we have a terrific franchise. And for me and for the team, what we're trying to build is a well-diversified global company that can be sustainably profitable over time, and that can also drive good growth. But at the end of it, what we're seeking is maximizing shareholder returns. You know, what I tell my team is I don't care about being the biggest, I care about being the best. And I define the best as value to our customers and value to our shareholders.
0: Historically, Everest has been quite a published shy company, although you're a public company. Is this going to change under your tenure?
2: Look, my philosophy, Mark, is that I think we need to be transparent with our stakeholders about our strategy, about how we're doing it, and what we're achieving and to me that's an important component of that and so you've seen that uh, we've invested more in investor relations more in marketing and communications you know we are a top 10 global reinsurer and we're a fast-growing specialty reinsurer in that market and so i think it's important for us to uh, to tell our story
0: i suppose part of that story of the last few years has been a big investment in more on the insurance side of things on specialty insurance you're going to be doing more of that has that got further to run
2: yeah, I, I'm very pleased with what uh, we have accomplished so far, Mark. You know, in, in that period of time, you know, we'll be over a $3 billion specialty insurance company at the end of this year. And for me, again, comes back to what I said earlier. More importantly, it's the fact that, you know, this is going to be a sustainable franchise from a profitability standpoint. You know, there's tremendous opportunity in primary insurance, both in the U.S. as well as internationally. And so for us, yeah, we see a long runway for this business. And and ultimately, I see the, the mix of our company changing. Right now, it's about 70% reinsurance, 30% insurance, and I see that changing over
0: time. What sort of percentage do you think would be the ideal balance to have at some point?
2: Yeah, I'm not sure we we have put a specific number out there because I think a lot of it depends on what the market will bear. And again, I'm an underwriter at heart. I grew up in the business as an underwriter. And so for me, making money in the business of underwriting is really the most important thing. But I could see us getting closer to a 50-50 balance uh, uh, over that period of time.
0: So we might as well get straight into talking about the marketplace. Do you think this is a market that's really, we talk about a hard market, a hardening market, is it a market that's really, previous hard markets or the really hard ones are characterized by a shortage of capital? And it doesn't seem to me to be a real shortage of capital at the moment. I mean, how do you define it? Do you think there is a capital shortage? Or is it just that there's a lack of willingness of that capital to be deployed uh, unless rates of return are going to be more acceptable?
2: Yeah, Mark, I, I I tend to agree with your point of view. I think it's really not a question of um, a shortage of capital because I think there is still plenty of capital available in the market. It's really the cost of capital has gone up, and I think investors are demanding a higher premium, if you will, for the capital that they deploy. So to me, that that is really more what we're seeing in this space right now. And it's interesting, you know, there, there's an awful lot of talk about a hard market, and I think in certain lines of business that is true. You know, we've seen some of that in, in certainly in the primary space. We're seeing that in, in pockets in, in the reinsurance space. It's clearly a firming market and an improving market from an underwriter's perspective.
0: Yes, in terms of improving, do you think rates are now approaching adequacy or where, where they weren't adequate before? Or do you think we've got a long way to go?
2: No, I, I think we're getting closer. You know, if I look at, uh, at our own pricing, primarily in the primary insurance side of things, You know, our rate has been exceeding trend now over the last number of quarters, et cetera. And in the the reinsurance side, it's, it's a very similar phenomenon. But what I would say, though, and I think this is the point that you were making, is that we have been in a soft market for a long time. There's been a, a number of years where it was actually quite the opposite phenomenon taking place, where pricing was below trend. And so it does take some time for that to catch up. And I think we're starting to get close. I think in, in some of the long tail lines, you still have maybe a bit of ways to go for rates to be equal to trend and for pricing to be sufficient. And I think that's some of the the underlying pressure that you still see in the market and the reason why pricing continues to firm.
0: Is it that um, the hardness of the hard market is proportional to the softness of the soft market that preceded it?
2: Yeah, I think in some ways it probably is. And, you know, I'm, I'm in the camp that says you probably see continuing traction on pricing, certainly through 2021 and maybe beyond, depending on the line of business that's out there. There's a confluence of events that's taking place right now. Not only did you have the uh, the events of 2017, 2018, and 2019 from a catastrophe perspective, you know, you had some of the loss development on, on some of those losses as well for the industry, but you also have a low interest rate environment, you have social inflation, and now you have COVID. So all of that uncertainty, I think, leads to the fact that pricing has to come back to a more adjusted place for the industry. And I think you will see that continue.
0: You know, as a business like Everest 3, you've got a fantastic visibility on the strength of US casualty reserves, I would say. What do you think is the position at the moment? Do you think that those trends, those underlying loss trends are going to continue to worsen? And also, do you think we're going to continue to see a necessity for increasing of reserves to cover some of the shortfalls in back years?
2: Yeah, look, I think this goes back a little bit to, to the soft market discussion where for a number of years, again, a trend was exceeding pricing right and as a result of that i think reserves uh, you saw a, a decline in reserve releases and maybe a decline in reserve redundancies certainly in the industry and particularly in the us in those long tail classes of business and it will take some time for that to essentially come back to more equilibrium now as far as loss trend itself and do i see a worsening you know covid i think will certainly bring some pressure to that there will be litigation things will be debated in the courts, whether it's on the casualty side, directors and officers liability on business interruption, etc. And so that will continue to put some underlying pressure on, on trend, I think, as well.
0: What sort of time frame did you put on Know us being able to call to know whether COVID, how COVID-19 is affecting things? Because obviously, it's too soon right now. Would it be about a year's time or two years time or something like that before you could say, I know that this has had an effect?
2: I think it's a great question. Look, I think on on the shorter tail lines, you're bound to see the impact probably within a, a shorter time frame, whether it's 12 months to 24 months, et cetera, et cetera. The issue with it, though, is this is still an ongoing event, right? And this is what makes it so much more difficult to estimate in that sense and so much different than a natural catastrophe in that sense. So I think shorter tail lines, you probably get a view in a shorter time frame. Now, there will be litigation in shorter those short-tail lines as well, so that some things are going to be tied up in the courts. But I think you probably have a shorter time frame. I think on the long-tail lines of business, I think that's a different story. You know, and I think that's going to be a question of the jurisdiction that you're in. It's going to be a question of the coverage that's being debated. And ultimately, it's going to be a question of how the courts rule and any regulatory or legislative interference that may come into play. So the short answer is, I think it's going to be a while before we truly know the impact of COVID on the industry.
0: Fair enough. Juan, you said at the beginning that you preferred to be the best rather than the biggest. So now we've got this hardening market situation. Would you rather have top line growth for the wider cover that you may have been giving last year, or would you rather be restricting that cover for the same price or a combination of, of the two?
2: Yeah. I mean, look, the, the way I think about it is I, I see tremendous opportunity for the company right now in this market on both the reinsurance and the insurance side. You know, there's opportunity from the perspective of improving pricing, but there's also improving terms and conditions that are out there. So again, having grown up as an underwriter, I tend to look at it on a, on a risk specific basis and also on the needs of a buyer. You know, a buyer may opt to buy less coverage, a buyer may opt to add more coverage depending on their own economic situation, et cetera. And, you know, as underwriters, basically we, we tend to look at that and we see where the economic opportunity is for the company. And, and for us, you know, it's an underwriter's market right now. If you look at the reinsurance side of things, we see plenty of opportunity for growth in property cat, in retro, facultative risk, and in the casualty lines, particularly in the proportional, proportional arrangements as we see the, the primary insurance pricing coming through. On the insurance side, we also see some very good opportunities areas like directors and officers liability in excess casualty and in property as well at the same time so it's a good market to be an underwriter and, and we're pursuing all those opportunities
0: which would you rank as the best at the moment where you know when you've got all these uh, different uh, heads of department coming in competing for your capital to be allocated for 2021 for the budgeting meeting Would you tell them and which, who's your favorite at the moment
2: Yeah, no, I I would start with the fact that, you know, we have a pretty strong capital foundation, Mark. And so for us, you know, we are looking at the opportunities in reinsurance and insurance. And fortunately, we're not in a situation where you have to pick your favorite child, if you will, (laughs) uh, as a parent. That We can actually deploy that capital uh, to where we see the economic opportunity. But look, I I see um, a tremendous opportunity right now in excess casualty on the primary insurance side. And that is a place where there has been a retrenchment in capital. You know, there has been a retrenchment in, in people who are willing to provide capacity at that point in time. And one of the benefits that we bring as a young primary insurance company is we don't have a lot of legacy exposure. So I would say excess casualty is an opportunity. You know, you're starting to see some very good opportunities, particularly in d and in the public d and space particularly. You know, it was not always the case in that. And I think this is a market that has turned uh, relatively quickly, particularly in 2020. And I think you also see opportunities on the property side of things, both in the reinsurance side as well as the, uh, the, the primary insurance side.
0: The great thing about Everest Re, I've, I think, when sitting as a journalist is the way that you have this connection to all the way through the value chain and right up to the highest ends of retro and the capital markets with ILS and sidecars and all sorts of things. So you've participated in many, many places along the value chain. I'd love to sort of pick your brains a little bit about how you, you sort of your capital base wants to play. For example, if, if retro, I know that you're also a seller of retro, but if you feel that retro is getting too expensive, would it be the sort of situation where you would retain more of your reinsurance book, for example, and more of your insurance book? If you thought reinsurance, the reinsurance that you buy to protect your insurance book was too expensive, would you be happy to retain more of this business, particularly as it's going to be more rate adequate going forward or likely to be?
2: Yeah, sure. And again, I think it starts with, with the capital foundation of the company, as you were saying. You know, we have a diversified balance sheet. You know, we use alternative capital, I think, very effectively through our assets under management with Mount Logan, through our catastrophe bonds, through Kilimanjaro, et cetera. And so that gives us optionality. You know, As a group, we have over $13 billion of capacity that we can deploy, whether it's our own balance sheet, whether it's the alternative capital, et cetera. So that gives us a lot of firepower, particularly in a market like this. And it ultimately comes down to an economic trade-off to get to your question, right? So, you know, we are a buyer of retro, we are a seller of retro. On the buying side, we have diversified hedges. Some of the ones are the, the ones I just spoke to with Logan and Kilimanjaro, et cetera. And so it really has to do with the economic conditions as to how we think about that. So if buying retro becomes very expensive. Or I would say it a different way, if the economic conditions are improving so we can retain more risk and get price and get paid better for that, then we will happily do that. And you saw us do that in the first half of this year. We we talked about that publicly in our second quarter earnings. And what gives us the ability to do that, again, is the capital base and the foundation to do that. Now, not all uh, insurance, reinsurance carriers are in the same situation that we are. There's a lot of people that run their balance sheets on a very capital-like basis. And so for them to be able to play in a market like we're in today, they either have to write a smaller gross portfolio or they have to raise more capital to be able to maintain their PMLs and and the level of risk that they want to take into the company. For us, that's currently not our situation, right? And so the short answer to your question is yes. If, If economically we decide that we want to retain more risk and we're getting adequately paid for that, we will do that. But at the same time, it's also a seller's market, and we do sell retro right now. And it comes back to that there are people out there who have capital light models who will still require retro from companies like us. It's frankly a good time to be a rated carrier in this environment, you know, particularly with what you're seeing in the advent of the ILS market and some of the pause that we've seen in alternative capital at this point in time.
0: Do you think long-term ILS is still going to hold up? It's just, do you think it's going to trade through this difficulty it's had in the last couple of years now with the trapped capital situation?
2: Definitely. I, alternative capital, I, I think, is here to stay. And, and frankly, it's, it's just a fraction of the world's AUM that's really been devoted to, uh, to our asset class. I do believe that it is a diversifying asset class uh, to investors. I think right now what you're seeing is the fact that because of the, the catastrophes in 17, 18, and 19, now with the uncertainty around COVID, that there's been a bit of a pause. But I think that resolves itself. And frankly, we even see it in, in our Mount Logan. And we talked about this in our second quarter call, where we are already seeing some new investment coming in into Mount Logan. So absolutely, do I see uh, alternative capital playing a role going forward? Yes. And for us, make, taking advantage of that and making sure that we continue to have a diversified capital base is very
0: important. Juan, you've been you're in the Lloyds market in your own right uh, with your own syndicate and and you've been a trade capital supporter of the Lloyd's market for many years before that. Do you think Lloyd's is still an attractive platform for growth for a business like yours?
2: Yeah, I I think Lloyd's remains a relevant marketplace. I think it's uh, a place where business comes to it's a great distribution and access point. And I think absolutely it becomes relevant from that perspective. I also think that John Neal and the management team have done a terrific job in bringing underwriting discipline and focusing on all the operational changes that they need to focus on within Lloyd's to bring down the cost and make it a more viable platform
0: over time. You mentioned about capital raisings. Obviously, we've had the beginnings of the stirrings of what might be a class of 2020 or 2021. What sort of opportunity are they stepping into do you think it's broad like it would have been say in 2000 2001 or is it quite a narrow and focused one for example is it just a, a specialty in S kind of play
2: yeah that's an interesting question because I'm, I'm still in the camp that questions whether there is a class of 2020 yet but well,
0: there hasn't really happened yet yeah exactly it's just it, news it, stories at the moment no actual cash right. in banks of in bermuda or wherever
2: that's correct. And look, I think we, we have all seen the uh, the capital raising that's taken place there. Some of them are de novo ventures, others are not, et cetera. I think most of the focus right now has been in the, the specialty E&S space more so than anything else. There's certainly an opportunity there for growth. You know, We see that ourselves as a company and you know, we're playing aggressively in that space as well. But at this point, I do believe that uh, it, it's really a timing driven by the firming of rates, firming of terms, uh, particularly driven by the ENS space more so than anything else.
0: In terms of some of that capital raising that we've seen from incumbent players, do you think that's more of an aggressive capital raising so they can grow into this hardening market, or is it more defensive to short up their balance sheets? I think from
2: from my perspective, most of that has been really on the defensive side. You know, you've seen a, a number of players that have been out there. Some of it are smaller players that uh, do need more capital to be able to play in the space. Others go back to your earlier question about the fact that uh, retro costs are higher. And so for them to be able to maintain their PMLs, grow their PMLs in this standpoint, they need to raise more capital to be able to do that. So I, th- I do believe that the majority of what we're seeing in this space right now has been more defensive.
0: And going back to that class of 2020, how long do you think they've got given that it's not a very, very broad opportunity. Do you think it's a, also in terms of time frame? Is it a long-term opportunity? Or will it be like some other classes that flourish for a few couple of years and then quietly consolidate and disappear?
2: Yeah, Mark, I think that's the challenge. You know, look, I, I firmly believe that the momentum that we have right now in pricing and terms will continue for at least the next 12, 24 months. Um, beyond that, it all really depends on how economy bounces back. It depends on natural catastrophes, the impact of COVID, et cetera, et cetera. But definitely over the next 12, 24 months, I think I see that momentum continuing. And then the question really then becomes, can you really build a sustainable platform in that short period of time? And you know, one of the things that I think about is, you know, if you've raised a billion dollars, is that even enough? You know, the reality is we're in a time period right now where there is a flight to quality and there's a flight to quality for companies that have very strong ratings with stable outlooks, with significant capital to be able to deploy. Ultimately, I think what customers care about is, are you going to be sustainable? Are you going to be in that space? Are you going to pay my claims when I have significant issues over time? And I think that's the challenge that, a lot of the new entrants and a lot of the new capital are going to face. Now, whether they're successful in the long term, I think will depend on whether they can meet that criteria. But I think they, they have a window of opportunity. And the question is, what do they do with that window of opportunity? Do they really have a business plan that they can develop and implement in that period of time before we revert back to what typically the cycle reverts back to inevitably?
0: We've seen some interesting M&A in the broking space. How does the proposed merger of Aon and Willis affect your business?
2: Sure. Look, we happen to have, I think, excellent relationships with both Willis, with Aon, as well as our other distribution partners. And consolidation in in the broker space in the distribution space is certainly not new. There will be some dislocation, I'm sure. We're already seeing some of that in the press. But I think long term, I think for companies like ours that have been trading for more than 30 years with brokers like Aon, Willis, etc., you know, I don't see it as a, as a material change force from that perspective. Again, I think it goes back to the depth and breadth of relationships that we have with.
0: Them. Because you're such a relevant player being a top 10 reinsurer, um, that you stay relevant and you have to keep yourself relevant and think, you don't need to do that right now because you are strategically already kind of, you're in a, a permanent place of relevance in, in the marketplace.
2: Well, I think that's, that's an important part of it. I think as a, again, as a top 10 reinsurer we do have deep relationships with with our distribution and with our seeds uh, at the end of the day. So from that perspective, I think that's very relevant. The other part of it is we're constantly working to reinvent ourselves to remain valuable and, and to add a value proposition to the industry and to our distribution to make us a, a credible partner and to continue to, uh, to grow in their, their wallet share, et cetera. And that's very important to me. You know, in the primary insurance space, and it goes back to one of your earlier questions, as we grow that business over time, what is the value that we bring? What's our differentiating proposition to, to other carriers? And you know, we're nimble, we're decisive, we bring specialty capacity, we're part of a global group, and we like to trade with people who have needs that we can solve. And so all of that, I think, comes back into the equation on how we deal with broker consolidation, et cetera.
0: Talking about innovation, we've just had a fantastically successful IPO of Lemonade, which in many ways is, a, I suppose, the pinup of the, what has been the insure tech movement that's happened over the last three or four years. Do you think this is a, some kind of a watershed moment? It's trading on fantastic multiples, which I'm sure your, all your investors would love you to be trading on or any other major incumbent. There are many multiples of the multiples that the traditional insurance, a publicly quoted insurance industry is trading on. Do you think this is some kind of a watershed moment? Because obviously, if InsurTech wasn't on anybody's radar before, which I find very hard to believe, but now it certainly, it must be on everyone's radar now that we've got a publicly traded company that's had a very successful IPO.
2: Yeah, look, I, I think the fact that um, InsurTech has come such a long way is, is a terrific thing for all of us, right? Because it drives innovation. Competition is a very good thing. You know, one of the interesting things, and having been watching this space for a while, is that they recognize the things that the traditional insurance industry has not done well. But it's difficult for us to see because we've been doing it the same way for so many years. And when insurtex comes into the equation, it dramatically transforms models and it transforms perceptions, et cetera. So to me, I think it's a terrific thing to see what's happening. Now, whether it's a watershed moment or not, I'm not sure. You know, there's a lot of vagaries that go into valuation, et cetera. But I think the the way people are starting to think about business, about how we transact it in a more automated way, and how we use data analytics and use that to basically drive quotes faster, how we can give answers to our customers more accurately. I think all of that is a terrific way for all all of us to think about. And companies like ours have been thinking about this and adapting to that. So to me, innovation is a very good thing.
0: Also, got a business like Tesla, which, again, obviously uh, now a, a very successful public company with a great amount of capital available to it and a huge market capitalization. With a business like Tesla getting into insurance, is that good news for a progressive reinsurer like yourselves? Yeah, look, I think
2: for me, competition is always a good thing. And that's one of the great things about the capitalist system It's that it keeps you on your toes, particularly when you have somebody like Elon Musk, and the amount of capital that they can they can drive. You know, it makes our companies like ours better. It makes the industry better in general. Now, the the question that's always in my mind, because I've seen it a a number of times, is are they underestimating the complexity of our industry from a regulatory standpoint? And that's always difficult for people who have not been in our industry to to understand, accept, and adapt to. And we've seen many of an insured tech that's come into the space frankly fail because of that, right? They come in with terrific ideas, ways to to be able to adapt technology etc but ultimately particularly if you're in the u.s you're still dealing with 50 different jurisdictions that are going to mandate different contracts and coverage wordings etc etc It makes it a bit more complex but look in general i'm a big adopter of of innovation technology and a big believer that competition makes you better so i wish them well one well,
0: i haven't got any more questions for you so thank you so much for Giving me your time. And I wish you all the best. And I hope you have a a very good end of year renewal season coming up for you.
2: Great. Terrific, Mark. And thank you again for having me on the program.
0: Thanks so much. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Thanks for listening. And once again, big thanks to today's supporter, Claims Direct Access.